stone dead or is it merely resting we find out in today's episode of on the ledge i'm joined by matt candeus of the in defense of plants podcast and now book to find out all about dormancy this week and i share some of your tales of woe about the plants that didn't make it thinking about plants of mine that aren't doing very well perhaps they've got one dead leaf or sometimes the whole thing has just turned to dust I often think of Monty Python's parrot sketch because I'm wondering to myself is it actually dead or is it just resting the botany of dormancy is something that I've had a lot of questions about from listeners over the years. So it felt like time to turn this latest leaf botany episode into an examination of what's really going on when our plants go dormant. What is the leaf botany series? Well, it's a very occasional episode covering different aspects of how our plants grow. We've covered pigments, we've covered shape. And this week, Matt Candeus of the In Defense of Plants podcast is here to talk to us about when our plants decide to take a break. Hi, Jane. I'm Matt Candeus. I'm a community ecologist by training with a specific focus in plants. I'm also the host of the In Defense of Plants podcast and blog, and I've recently dived into the world of authorship. I wrote a book called In Defense of Plants, an Exploration into the Wonder of Plants, and it is an absolute honor to be back on the podcast with you today. The topic that I want to get into with you today is dormancy, because I've had a lot of listener questions about what dormancy is, what it means, what it does to the plant. And I'd love to have your professional viewpoint on this, or not viewpoint, professional chapter and verse, uh, because I really don't know the answer. Is dormancy one of those terms which is strictly defined in botany, or is it one of those terms that kind of has a few different meanings? Yes and no. I think it has a stronger definition than a lot of terms can have in botany, but largely speaking, it's just a cessation or an arresting of plant growth for a period of time that can be triggered by a variety of factors. But the the key factor is that it's a a stopping of the meristem growth. And that can mean a lot of different meristem tissues, but as long as they're not growing, technically that's dormancy. So just for those of us who've not heard that term before, the meristem growth, that's the growing points of the plant, presumably. The points where it can develop new tissue. Right. Tips of branches, the the sets of tissues just directly under the bark for trees. So it's, it's undifferentiated cells that can then begin to expand, grow, differentiate into new branches, leaves, that sort of thing. This has become a bit of a a hot issue, I think partially because of one of those lovely internet things that happens where suddenly you start seeing something over and over again and wonder where it's come from and you think, oh yes, it's somebody on Instagram talking about this. There seems to have been a bit of a thing where people are talking about half dead leaves on plants and whether they are 
a liability for the plant or whether the plant needs them until the point where they're completely dead. I mean, I'm not explaining this very well. The question actually came from Taylor, who says, <laughs> well, trimming old leaves off plants, I wonder at what point old leaves become a liability. I err on the cautious side and assume they're at least photosynthesizing, even if half brown and crispy. But I also realise that leaves are shuttling energy into old leaves to keep them going. Long short story short question. When do you choose to remove the old foliage so it's not a drain on the plant? Now, I know this isn't directly dormancy, but it's kind of connected in that sometimes plants obviously do lose their leaves during a dormant period. And this kind of idea that they're draining the plant kind of goes against my botanical instincts. Can you shed any light, Matt? Yeah, I mean, it is completely false. They're, they're not taking a drain on any of aspect of the plant. So I think what Taylor's referring to here is actually senescence. So the kind of drawback of older leaves, usually down farther below the active growing tip. And it does look kind of alarming at first. I mean, that's always the big question is what's going on here? And then I have always have to ask, is there, are these leaves at the top of the plant, at the bottom, sort of near the base or out towards the tips, depending on the growth habit. Uh, but this is senescence, which can sort of preempt dormancy for a lot of species, but it's also a regular part of active growth as well. Plants will pretty much shut down any organ that's not giving back to uh, net photosynthetic gain. So in the context of a leaf, you know, if it's older, damaged, maybe just not getting as much light as the other leaves, they'll start to shut that leaf down and excise it from the growth. Because if it's not giving back, it's actually more of a drain to have it on there. And so what you're actually seeing is a good thing. It's not showing that the leaves are trying to keep old leaves going. They're actually taking nutrients out of them, re reclaiming some of what had been invested into that leaf, which is why they start to turn yellow in different colors. It's kind of like fall coloration. You're seeing a drawback of compounds like chlorophyll, which is high in nitrogen, and then that's revealing other compounds in the leaf that are different colors like yellows and reds. And so this idea that it's a liability is, is false. I think the only liability you could possibly point to is, you know, if they fall on the soil and start to rot, you could get fungal issues, but there really isn't any liability. In fact, I know a lot of growers that kind of pride themselves on keeping older parts of the plant that have since senesced and dried and withered as sort of a testament to how much this plant has done over the years. That's an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you do want to take them off, it's best to wait until the plant, till they really are brown and crispy, and then the plant's sort of taken everything back that it possibly can. But it's interesting that there are people who leave those on. I, I hadn't heard that. I guess, I suppose the only other danger is that you leave the leaves on thinking that they're just undergoing senescence when actually the leaves um, are falling for some other reason, such as overwatering, and you end, <laughs> you end up with another problem. But I guess that's about diagnosis, right? Right, right. And I think, too, uh, even from an aesthetic standpoint, if you want to clip them earlier before they fully withdraw, and if you're taking care of the plant, you know, it's not like they're living on the slim margins that they live on in nature. In our home, hypothetically, if you're doing well, they're, they're pampered. And so even taking off half senesced leaves with some green still left on them isn't going to make a huge drain on the plant unless you like almost completely defoliate it in the process. It is really cool the way that the plants do this. I mean, I'm thinking of my streptocarpus specifically that in the wintertime, some of them 
have what I think is called a, the line of abscission, where you can see half the leaf, the top half of the leaf, furthest away from the petiole is like really yellow. And then you've got this literal line and then a green section. And it's like the plant is kind of almost pulling back the chlorophyll in a line. Yeah, yeah. It's you, you can kind of see that distinct layer between, you know, what the plant is valuing and keeping going and what it's trying to uh, do away with at that point. And it that whole abscission layer becomes extremely obvious in sort of deciduous trees and temperate areas. You can actually look in some species at the base of the leaf, see this sort of corky growth uh, that was grown in between the leaf to kind of cut it off from the rest of the vascular tissue. So the plant is very intentional with its actions uh, when it comes to leaf senescence in that way. Now I'm thinking just here on a slight tangent, I'm thinking of, this is a slightly weird one, but I was collecting beech leaves recently for my, from, from a beech hedge for my daughter's isopods. Uh, we've recently got an isopod culture in the house. Nice. And yeah, it's great actually. I have to say, um, I unexpectedly find them really interesting. Uh, well, I mean, I'm not actually that's not unexpected, but I like them a lot more than I thought I was going to be going to like them. They're very cute and uh, anyway, alarmingly charming. They are. They're really great. And um, anyway, we were collecting these beech leaves, and I knew that beech leaves would be a good choice because they're still on the hedge, and so they haven't kind of been on the ground and picking up potential you know, problems or hitchhikers. And I knew they'd still be on that hedge because beech leaves have this habit of holding on to those dead leaves until the new leaves come through. And I'm just wondering if there's any, what, I mean, wondering why beech in specifically do that and hold on to those leaves until the new growth comes through. Certainly is actually, it's a great observation. And it's cool to hear that the European beeches do it as well because our uh, Eastern North American species does the same thing and as well as some of our oaks. And so the phenomenon you're describing is, is referred to in the scientific literature as marcescence or marquescence. And it's actually hotly debated as to why the plants are doing this. Uh, what they do know about it is that it tends to happen lower down on the tree and it tends to happen more often on younger trees. And so the leading hypothesis, or at least the one I favor, is that these are trees sort of protecting their buds while they're at convenient nibbling height for herbivores like deer. And so uh, the fact that it's specific, at least around here, and, and in your case to beech trees and in some oak species says a lot because those are species that are pumping a ton of tannins and lignin into their leaves. They have these very tough, uh, you know, they don't easily break down. And so the theory goes that by loading the tips of their branches with these dead husks of the leaves, uh, it's, it's making any herbivore think twice before it takes a big mouthful to get at what is essentially tiny buds. And the fact that there's a lot of tannins in there means that in any mouthful, if there's a lot more decaying leaf material in there than there are edible buds, those tannins are binding to tissues in the stomach and potentially keeping whatever is eating them from gaining any sort of nutritional benefit from it. Again, this is just a hypothesis, uh, but it's the one that I think makes the most sense in an evolutionary standpoint. That's really, really interesting. So I wonder whether the fact that it's a hedge and the perhaps the foliage is kept, like, or the plant is kept juvenile by the cut, constant cutting of the hedge, would that be a factor in it? Yeah, it's certainly possible. It would be a fun thing to... Uh you know, let a section grow and keep one section, you know, if you had the space and time to do some experiments. Yeah, I mean, actually, funnily enough, there are be mass loads of beet trees in the same park. I need to go and see if they've still got their leaves on as well. I'm not sure I'm going to go and check. 
check that out. But um, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> when you start observing these things, what you learn, it's uh, it's I'm always learning something new from plants, which is great. So let's just go back to dormancy. I've taken us off on a tangent as usual. We've talked a bit about the definition. So that must mean then that there are different kind of degrees of dormancy. I'm thinking of my Oxalis triangularis, which lost all of its leaves over the winter time and is just starting to reshoot, as opposed to something like my the cactus and succulent collection. Most of my cacti have not been growing over the winter, but they haven't lost any, well, they haven't got leaves, but you know, the succulents have got leaves. They haven't lost their leaves. They're just kind of sitting there waiting. Presumably that's just two different types of dormancy. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's all dormancy in the bigger picture of things, but I think dormancy is also a function of where these plants are coming from and sort of their life history strategy, so to speak. So an oxalis with lots of leaves that it can reproduce year after year, they're cheap, uh, you know, that leaving them out would risk damage during seasons where growth really isn't all that beneficial. And so dropping them makes a lot more sense. But for a succulent or a cactus, you know, either if that succulent leaves like an echeveria or a succulent stem like a cactus, you know, those are also water storage organs. So their their growth tips may not be expanding and adding new growth to that, but they hold on to those tissues longer because that's what's going to give them the uh, one up when favorable conditions return and they need to start growing again. So it's dormancy, but I think a lot of it's driven both in appearance and, and sort of effect on the plant itself by the habitats that they're coming from. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I guess that's why plants that come from climates where there's not much seasonal variation don't really need to be don't nearly need to demonstrate that dormancy because things aren't changing they're just going to going to keep on growing year round because the light levels are the same and the temperature is the same is that does that make sense i'm just thinking of all my aroids and you know the fact that they do keep growing over the winter even though Obviously, in my house, they're getting a bit less light. A little slower. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's entirely, dormancy is entirely to escape unfavorable conditions. You know, in the temperate zone, it's winter. Everything freezes, sensitive tissues are easily damaged, and even if they could be growing, there's really no water because it's all locked up in ice. So that's getting them through the harsh winter conditions. In seasonal areas, even in the tropics where you get a pronounced dry season, you can get dormancy there. Some herbaceous stuff will die back completely. Woody stuff often just drops its leaves. But even evergreen things can go dormant, like you saw with your cactus. But I think a lot about like rhododendrons, for instance, at least the evergreen species. They just kind of stop all metabolic activities or at least slow it down to the point where they're not doing much other than maintaining. So, yeah, it's all just escaping harsh conditions. And uh, that looks different based on where you are geographically. So that makes sense. So in other words, when I'm thinking about whether a plant needs dormancy, because I often get questions from people saying, oh, does this plant need to be dormant? Does that plant need to be dormant? Really, you need to have a look at what uh, its native climbs to assess whether it needs that dormancy based upon what's happening at different times of year and what the plant might be expecting to undergo in terms of, okay, this temperate plant uh, is expecting to be going into a, a cold British winter and, and lose all its leaves um, and then pop back up from its corms or rhizomes in the spring compared to the cactus, which is just going to sit there and um, 
and wait for things to improve. Yeah, I can't really think of any example where you could just look at a plant and sort of make a prediction about its dormancy needs. You definitely have to do your research, which I encourage you to do regardless of what you're aiming for, is like learn something about where these plants come from. What's the seasonality like? What kind of conditions would they experience in the habitats that they're native to? And, you know, the cues for dormancy vary. I mean, sometimes it's day length, other times it's temperature extremes. Uh, It could be completely hormonal. And, you know, there's flexibility in that. So, for instance, due to climate change here, our falls and springs are getting much more mild. So plants go dormant later and kind of wake up a little bit earlier, but they still, being from a temperate zone, have that evolutionary sort of momentum, I guess you could say, to require dormancy. In fact, plants from temperate zones most of the time absolutely require that dormancy period depending on how long it is uh, in order to you know maintain themselves long term. Yeah that's a really good point. Uh, So plants must have some kind of internal body clock to know when they are. How how are they doing that? Is that just by sensing the conditions changing? Uh, They were getting down to sort of um, heavy botany here but is there a way you can explain that to me in a way that even I will understand? Sure. And it's going to vary. And to be fair, I don't fully understand. And I don't think actually most scientists studying it on a daily basis. That's reassuring. But yeah, yeah, I like I like uh, the never ending mysteries of the plant world. But uh, yeah, usually it's I I would say is most often environmental cues. So for uh, any of the temperate species that I like to grow here or that you're growing over there, generally speaking, it's going to be the chill period. And so they kind of measure it in the same way I think the plant would perceive relative day length to night length. It's how many hours or days, in a bigger sense, are you experiencing very cold temperatures versus warm temperatures. And so as that length starts to grow, you know, more cold temperatures than you're getting warm temperatures, that's a cue that, you know, okay, we're heading into a season defined by extreme cold and and ice. Um, You know, sometimes that's also day length too. That can also influence it. So as the days shorten, that's another cue to a plant to say, okay, we're heading into the coldest months of the year, time to start winding things down. Uh, Again, it's going to vary. The hormones involved are pretty complex, and I think we're still discovering which ones are involved to what degree. But I think a lot of it is kind of a mix of environmental cues and uh, just sort of hormonal rhythms within a plant based off of those. And presumably, again, it varies whether dormancy or a lack of dormancy impacts on the plant. I'm thinking of, you know, some people growing succulents don't really change their conditions in the winter and just keep them at the same kind of uh, temperature and, and light levels. Presumably the those kind of plants are able to cope with that, whereas perhaps a plant from a temperate region that's expecting to lose its leaves over the winter might have more of an issue. It just depends on on the species and so on. Yeah, so if you tried to keep most temperate species going, uh, even if you could somehow fight their innate ability to just go dormant, you would burn them out. It would just be like keeping that flame going at high speed all the time. It's it's almost like they need that rest period. But for a succulent, you know, from a desert that doesn't really get a ton of seasonality, maybe it does have a rainy season. I think those conditions are more tied to just the local growing conditions. And so if they stay favorable, say you're growing these in a warm house under like heavy powered lights during the winter, and you like you said, don't really change much, you could keep those going probably to infinity and beyond provided again you're meeting all their other needs so 
yeah, it, it again goes back to sort of the habitat and, and the environmental cues that they're relying on to uh, go into dormancy and what they would experience when they do decide to go into dormancy. I mean, like all things, it's experimentation and everyone's home is going to be different. I mean, I'm sitting here with my cacti and succulents, which I'm kind of I have watered them a little bit this winter, but I haven't they haven't had much. And uh, I'm sort of teetering on the brink of maybe giving them some water, but certainly the agaves in my unheated greenhouse will not be watered for a bit yet because I live in fear of the collapse. I've seen so many, especially this winter, I think it's been a harsher winter here. And I've seen so many people posting pictures on social media of cacti that like you touch them and they just dissolve um, and really tragic, tragic images of like, succulents that have suffered so yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna break mine out of dormancy too early because uh yeah that might end really badly and i've done quite well this year i've not lost any I've, well i've got one dodgy looking agave but yeah it's um it's 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 all yeah, going so well over, i'm sure well the next the next challenge is bringing my cacti and succulents that have been inside out to the greenhouse without them getting sunburned because obviously they're they've been used to being inside so that's that's the big one where i have to kind of have the fleece ready to be shuffled about and uh yeah the challenges of being a plant parent are considerable but hey it's all part of the fun the spring is always this delicate balancing act of should i water is this enough light is this too much light oh god yeah yeah it really is it's a tr it's tricky time but you know i get i like plants that have a bit of a, a rhythm to them and or you know do sort of die back i think it's kind of fun um i guess that's why i like the gisneriads like smithianthus and things just because i can just right right now they've been dead in a pot for a while and then i'll just start watching them again and they'll spring out which is kind of fun but i know lots of people don't have the places to store pots of soil with nothing in them so <laughs> highly limited by space yeah exactly exactly Thanks to Matt for giving us the lowdown on dormancy and we'll be hearing about Matt's book at the end of this episode. So we've covered the plants that are taking a break temporarily, but what about the plants that are taking a permanent break? Yes, as I often say on the show, killing houseplants is, like death more generally, part of being a human being and nothing to be ashamed of. It's a learning curve. We're all on that curve somewhere. But it doesn't make us feel any less bad, particularly when it's a plant that's precious to us. A few weeks ago, I put up a post on Instagram with a picture of a beautiful stag's horn fern that I had killed. <laughs> um, I don't know why I'm laughing. It was absolutely tragic. I left it outside over the summer. It was very, very happy. And then... I forgot to bring it in on an unusually frosty night in late summer, early autumn. And that beautiful stag's horn fern was no more. And I've regretted it ever since. And what was great about this post is I was trying to sort of get across the fact that we all kill plants. Sometimes it's a silly mistake. Sometimes it's, it's down to a lack of knowledge. Sometimes it's pests there are many reasons why plants die and it really is okay as i often say on the show 
But I wanted you guys to share my pain and, and Julie, you did with lots of great comments. I'm just going to read out a few of them now for you to share the pain. Cue the sad music. The Silver Cricket writes, I killed an arrowhead plant of an especially nice variety that was originally from my grandmother 34 years ago. I still think about that plant. DGA underscore plants wrote, I killed a massive Echinocactus grusonii that had been given to me. It must have been 30 plus years old. It had been fine in my greenhouse for a few years, but last winter it just rotted. Man, that's a brutal one. Echinocactus grusonii, that's the golden barrel cactus, just in case you didn't quite get the Latin names there. Morgan Cole, the gorgeous pilea my mum has now given me two of. Just can't seem to keep them, and I adore the leaves. Well, hopefully your mum's got a few more she can give you, Morgan Cole. Houseplants XYZ wrote, I have one of those small greenhouse from Lidl and I forgot to open it one morning. It was a warm sunny day when I finally remembered it was like 70 degrees inside that tent. A few of my succulents just melted, including a five-year-old crassula that I grew from a leaf. I did manage to save most by taking cuttings of what was left from the main plant. Chicken Knickers writes, I'm gutted I kept buying calatheas even though I always kill them, so no more calatheas. I think that's probably sensible, chicken knickers, although I wouldn't be surprised if you dragged into the calathea network again. Uh, unintentional pun there. Sweet Greets writes, Crassula Buddha's Temple, Begonia Rex, Alocasias, but the ones that have survived have brought me so much joy, just won't be getting any Alocasias or Begonias for a while. And altogether elsewhere, says probably the big beautiful Calicia repens that I grew from discarded cuttings left outside all summer and brought in for winter just a few days late. The Fern Feeler writes, I was very stressed working 60 hour weeks, dead on my feet and plant care was pretty much last on my priority list. So one night I stagger out to my patio where my plants live to make sure nothing is dead and panic when I realise my air plants are at least a week overdue for their soak. Luckily for me, there was a full bucket of water nearby. Score. I dumped my giant four foot long Tillandsia usneoides in to soak overnight and stagger back in to collapse on the couch. Cut to the next morning. I go to retrieve my lovely, fresh, hydrated baby from the bucket. Then the smell hits me. Apple. Cider. Vinegar. That bucket was not fresh water, but a strong vinegar solution to kill some weeds and use as a disinfectant, which I never got around to emptying. I now had a giant pickled air plant. I now refuse to work such long hours. I love my rest and my plants too much. Oh, there were some heartbreaking tales in there. Thank you to everyone who shared on that thread on Instagram. And if you want to read everyone's contributions, I will put a link to that in the show notes. But now it's time for some shout outs. New patrons this week. There's loads of you. <laughs> Natasha, Jonathan, Tom, Esther, Alex, Gillian, and Kerry all became legends. And Rebecca, Chicken, 
Elaine, Melanie and Jenny became crazy plant people. Thanks to all of you for your support. And it's good timing because it means you'll be able to join us for the patron only Zoom session, which is this Sunday, Sunday, the 28th of March 2021 at 7 p.m. British summer time. I'm not going to try to translate that into any other time zones because uh, I know our clocks go forward the previous uh, midnight and hence it's all a bit confusing. So check your time zone. If you Google it, you should be able to find out what 7 p.m. BST is where you are. But join us on Zoom. If you look at the latest post on Patreon, there is a link where you can come along and hear me talk and ask questions. And that's for patrons of any level from crazy plant person right up to super fan. So please do join me. Thank you to Fairy Flower Mother in the US for leaving a lovely review on Apple Podcasts. And I wanted to give you an update on my book, Legends of the Leaf. Somebody commented that I hadn't mentioned it of late. I'm sorry about that. I've had lots of pots on the boil, as you might say. But the good news is that I am ploughing through. We're at 476 supporters, which is 73% funded. I'm so close to being three quarters of the way there. And I've definitely seen some familiar names on the pledge list recently, including Anthony Peterson. I know you're a very dedicated listener and patron, so thank you. Grace, uh, I see you've upgraded your pledge. Thank you for that. Alice and Ada, you're all on there. Uh, I'm sure there's loads more of other names on there that I haven't been able to spot. But thank you to everyone who has pledged recently. People are asking when the book's going to come out. Well, I can't get on with the book until I'm 100% pledged. So now that my kids are back in school and I have a tiny bit more time, I'm going to be working hard to spread the word about Legends of the Leaf. So please do help me with that. And let other people know about what the book is about. It's going to be great fun. As I said on Twitter the other day, if you want to find out which houseplant was part of Nazi World War II research, which plant is eaten by Japanese people as tempura, and why it's very unwise to eat an unripe fruit of the Swiss cheese plant, then this is the book for you. If you want to find out more, visit my show notes at janeperone.com and click through to the link to unbound.com where you can make your pledge. So let's make it happen. Thanks to those of you who've already sent in your voice memos about The Houseplant Expert by Dr. David Hesseon. I'm still looking for more of your thoughts on this. If you really, really don't want to be putting your voice on the air, then you can send me an email, a regular email with your thoughts, and I can read them out. But I'd love to hear your voice. So please do send that through on theledgepodcast.gmail.com. You can just use your smartphone to record. And that way, we can find out what it is you love about Dr. David Hesseyan for that upcoming episode. And you can hear your comments alongside those of a certain Mr. James Wong. I'm also still looking for questions for Terry Richardson, aka The Black Thumb, about orchids. So if you've got a poorly orchid, do drop me a line with your question and I will put that to Terry for an expert answer. Now back to my chat with Matt And I wanted to find out what exactly was going to be in this new book, In Defence of Plants. I think I've 
set out a goal for having sort of a linear start and finish to it, but telling stories that fit in all along the way. So I kind of start with my introduction to botany and how I realize plants are amazing, and then I use that as sort of a jumping off point for all the ways that I find plants are doing amazing, uh, sometimes very familiar things, but also very alien things for what we expect out of the living world. And so I start you know, going into flowering, dispersal, uh, fighting, and parasitism and carnivory and just kind of explore all of the really cool examples that I could come up with or handfuls I should say it was harder to pick which ones get included and which ones I couldn't include just based on my my length limitations so it's storytelling with sort of a directed narrative can you give us a couple of juicy I mean I'm not expecting you to spill everything but can you give us a couple of one or two little juicy facts from the book that we might we might be able to read further about sure yeah and actually some might involve orchids that uh you you and your friends over in the uk would probably be pretty familiar with the bee orchids and the genus Ophrys. they mm. produce they're terrestrial orchids that i think generally grow at higher elevations but they produce some of the most extravagant flowers and then when you put in them into the context of what pollinates them, that extravagance makes a lot more sense because they're pollinated by the males of different bee and wasp species. And so when you start looking at who pollinates what flower, the not all the time, but a lot of the patterns start to look a lot like females of those species, which makes you start to scratch your head. And then when you watch the males interact with the flowers, you realize, oh, they're trying to mate with them. And so there's been all of this really cool chemical uh, analyses done on what each flower is giving off and they're finding that in a lot of cases these flowers are emitting the same or very close mimics uh, of the female sex pheromones of those bees and so there's been all of this debate as to how many species are in this group and what's causing all of this diversity and they're finding that all it takes is one tweak in the pathway of how these scent compounds are produced within the plant to make an entirely different compound and because of the specificity of the sort of pheromones within a different bee within different bee species you get one tweak that changes it suddenly it's attractive to a completely different species you have reproductive isolation because that bee's only going to that flower and now you have what is essentially a new species almost overnight and so stories like that are, are really exciting because it, it kind of paints this picture of you know kumbaya pollination it's the most <laughs> altruistic thing in the planet is no it's 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 all the plant trying to take as much as it can by giving back as little as it can in return and and few offer such a good example as the orchids because there's really no reward and and more time that a male bee spends mating with a flower is less time it's mating with actual members of its own species so it's it's almost kind of sinister obviously there's no real emotions like that in the plant world but it is pretty wild to think about <laughs> yeah there are some really cool orchids in fact somewhere i've got a book i live in the county of bedfordshire and i do have a book called orchids of bedfordshire which i'm gonna have, go and have a look at the only orchids i've ever seen in the county of bedfordshire are ones outside a branch of go outdoors the <laughs> Which is a chain of um, like, you know, like you go and buy like uh, tents and um, walking boots there. This is such such a weird location. It's like, why? I mean, yeah, they just I just saw them in a patch of grass outside there. And I was just thinking that's strange. But there you go. That is the the way that nature works. These things pop up all over the place. Um, But that, that is fascinating. That's a great patch of grass. 
I am that woman who was like lying on the grass outside the builders merchants on the industrial estate because there's a really good patch of sweet violets flowering at the moment, which I go and check every year. My children are like, mom, would you stop sniffing the violets? You know, if people think you're doing something strange, lying in the grass on the side of the road. So yeah. Uh, it's um, that's what we do for plants, isn't it? I'm sure you have done similarly um, outlandish things over the years to get to see something interesting. Yeah, and luckily most of the time I'm in the nature doing it. But now that I live in suburbia, my neighbors get to see all my weird plant habits. <laughs> exactly. Now um, you've obviously been making in defense of plants for quite a few years. What is it like condensing all your knowledge into a book as opposed to making a podcast? Uh, it was a mixed bag. When it first kind of was presented to me as an option, I realized I would be silly to say no to it. And so I became immediately overwhelmed because I was finishing up my PhD, writing up my dissertation, and I was like, oh, cool, another thing I can add to my daily list of to-dos. Uh, but, you know, once I kind of got over the hump and kind of got into a groove with writing, it became a lot of fun because... You know, in a lot of ways, the podcast is similar to writing a book is that you're just a curious person looking for answers to questions that you have and talking with really interesting people because, you know, one single person is not going to have all the answers or even a portion of the answers that are satisfying. So being able to talk and explore different avenues, you, you unlock ideas you don't even realize you had or questions you even had at the first place. But it does differ in the fact that I, you know, week after week, sit down with interesting people and ask them the questions, and then they get to distill the science to me in the way that they deem it important or relevant to what they're asking. Uh, whereas when you're writing a book or anything for that matter, you kind of have to find that stuff for yourself and distill it in a way uh, that you're not getting a lot of help. You're just kind of taking the science and trying to make it as understandable as possible, which is where having good editors comes in. They kind of rein you in and say, okay you're way out in the weeds on this one, or no, you can go into a little bit more detail about this. So it's different in that it's really just my voice the whole time, which is really uncomfortable uh, in a lot of instances. <laughs> it makes you feel very vulnerable uh, at times because you're like, oh, well, I don't... When people bring questions or, or issues about the podcast, like I say, oh, well, go to the source. I gave you all the contact information. Go talk to the people that do this science. But if, you know people want to explore more or ask me questions or say something about the book, well, then I'm kind of at the front of that and saying, okay, well, this is how I interpret it. How would you interpret it? You know, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of fun nuances to both. Uh, there's a lot of overlap, of course. Uh, the podcast gave me so many ideas that ended up in the book, uh, but it is pretty different in it being solely your work. <laughs> and uh, your podcast been going a few, how many years has it been going now? It must be... I'm going to, let me guess, I'm going to say, has it been going six years? Yeah, yeah, it's about six years at this point. Good job. <gasps> oh, I, that was good. Because I'm thinking you started a couple of years before me, so that's about right. Uh, so, obviously, your mission is to get everyone to appreciate plants. Do you think, I'm not, I'm not putting this all on you, because obviously there's other people <laughs> working on this too, <laughs> but do you, do you feel like plants are, are getting, get, are starting to move up the sort of agenda in terms of being recognised as the amazing things they are? Great question. And in so many ways, I think we're making headway. Of course, it's a big royal we. I am not alone in this, nor should I be. Uh, we're all in this battle together to try to bring plants to the at least a portion of the forefront of people's attention. But I think it's working. You know, I, I get I kind of gauge the response based on the emails that I get from week to week. 
And, you know, you, when I first started, it was all academics or people that were really into plants already, you know, sort of the choir. But as I've kind of gone on and done topics with different people, done a lot of crossovers, you start to hear from people that almost start out the emails verbatim, like, I was never into plants, or I never considered plants before, and now I'm listening to your podcast, or I'm reading this person's book, and you start to get the sense that I think the importantness, at least, with uh, surrounding plants is starting to kind of come to people's attention, and a lot of that, I think, has to do with sort of the other charismatic organisms like bees and monarchs that absolutely rely on plants. I think people are starting to make those connections that, oh, Plants are habitat, and we're losing everything because of habitat loss, so maybe there's something to plants. But also, you know, both a blessing and a curse, the pandemic has taught people that they can find a lot of entertainment in and around their, or, or they have to find ways to amuse themselves in and around them ho in their home or risk, you know, severe depression as a result. And I think a lot of people have solved that issue through gardening and, and houseplants and outdoor gardening if you have the ability to do so. So, you know, whether you're interested in it because you get food or it's just some nice stuff to have in your house to look at, or you really do get into the botanical aspects or the way plants interact with the world. I think people are kind of slowly coming around. Now, it's always you take the good with the bad. There is a surge, as you you know kind of hinted at earlier, with a lot of misinformation going around. I'm not going to point fingers at houseplant groups on Facebook, but I think I see a lot of... <laughs> point away! <laughs> there's, there's a lot of misinformation going around at the same time, which, again, I think at least people are interested in thinking about this stuff, but, you know, there's a lot of bad sources out there, and just because someone can keep Sansevieria alive and has a nice Instagram account doesn't make them a houseplant expert. So I think, you know, you got to kind of take the good with the bad. And, and all I can do at the end of the day is I never want to like pile on or call anyone out or put anyone on blast. It's not why I'm here. I just want to inspire people. And if I put out a resource that's welcoming and inspiring and people can latch on to at least parts of it at times, then I think I've done my job. Absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, you're right. There have been, I mean, the ones, what are the ones I've seen this week? Um, shaking your fiddle leaf fig seems to be popular okay. right now, which... <laughs> I can kind of see, like I can see where it's coming from, but I I just don't. I think you'd have to be shaking like you literally have to have it next to you, shaking it all day in order to replicate any kind of natural movement that was coming about through, you know, wind strengthening the the trunk. Like how how long are you expecting to shake for? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I know there's I know there is science about you know stroking seedlings being beneficial, but I don't know scaling that up to a tree. But that's one. Then there's also um, the pasta water one, um, huh? watering your plants with the water from your pasta. Oh oh, which, like starch water. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, like starch water. Which again, I'm just like. Just use fertilizer. Like people have spent a lot of time and research making bespoke special houseplant fertilizers that have got the right amount of nutrients in them. Why are you worrying about pasta water? <laughs> that just seems like a great place for bacteria and fungal, like not good ones. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's just a bacteria fest, isn't it? You can yeah. just see that. And the other one I saw today was somebody saying that somebody had recommended to them that when they potted up their Hoya, that they put an egg underneath Ugh, the root God. ball. 
No. Now, I don't know if that was a smashed egg or a whole egg, but I was just like, that's all kite. That's going to stink. Yeah, that's going to be really gross. And, so. and the whole eggshell thing <laughs> in and of itself is so blown out of proportion. You know, the amount of mm. grinding you'd have to get eggshells down to and the amount of time you'd have to invest in amending even small amounts of soil, I think it's it's largely overplayed. Uh, you know, it's the same thing as human yeah. health is everyone's looking for shortcuts. Everyone's looking to put their own little spin on things. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's good information in there uh, sometimes and oftentimes it's coming from good intentions. But, you know, take a step back, realize people have been at this for a very long time and there is a just boatload of resources that have been tried true and tested over time and you know maybe what this person's just kind of reiterating from another person that they heard it from who's reiterating it from another person they heard it from isn't the best they might be charismatic but they might not be the best source to go to (laughs) and i guess the other thing is is that like houseplants are tough and so you know if you do water them with pasta water they'll probably be okay but it's just but doesn't that doesn't mean it's a good idea Uh, and that's the other part too is most of the stuff you're encountering or that's readily available unless you're getting into really esoteric stuff is is kind of stood the test of time in terms of you know if it's marketable and economically viable it's probably not that picky because it's mass produced and can handle the conditions that most people uh you know Mm -hmm. us common folk are throwing at them in our in our houses and apartments so you know, you even have to ask yourself, like, how much of this is even necessary if you use decent enough compost uh, in your mix? You know, we're always asking my buddy Dave, like, oh, man, should we repot this? He's like, well, do you want it to grow to twice its size? Then if not, then don't bother. If you do, then give it mm. more. You know, it's it just uh, you kind of got to gauge your situation. Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, you do hear these stories of like great grandparents who've got this begonia or something that hasn't been repotted in 25 years and it's the size <laughs> of a house and things like that you're thinking right. you know there's 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 uh, i've got plants which are you know pot, potted i haven't repotted and they're in pots with no drainage and it really shouldn't work but they're absolutely fine so exactly yeah um we all break the rules <laughs> Yeah, yeah and it works but um and I, you know again I, i'll say this before i i will keep the most finicky weird plants alive no problem but you know i can kill a dumb cane or a pothos tomorrow if i just look at it the wrong way so <laughs> even you know quote-unquote easy stuff can be challenging depending on what your interests are and how much attention and and what soil mixes it's again it is so case by case yeah, and I think there's a lot in the fact that it depends how much you like the plant. Like, I think the reason why you can't keep the pothos yeah. alive is because you don't really care. Like, you're not going to put the effort in. <laughs> right. And I find this with plants right. that I'm just like, you know, when somebody gives me, and this happens, you know, about once every other Christmas, somebody br- gives me a poinsettia, I'll be like, thanks. And I just, it will die because I really don't have any motivation to take care of it whereas a plant that's a little bit tricksy you know that um i really love i will put a lot of work into and thus it thrives that's a really good point jane i wonder if the fact that i just grow like the most common house plant in my house growing up were pothos and they're a dime a dozen anytime i want more i can just call my mom and she'll ship me a cutting so i wonder if i just take it for granted you know i feel bad but also there's a never-ending supply from her house uh which you know also makes my jaw drop when i see people spending any money on a pothos ever I know it's a it's a st- I mean I've just, just been looking at Hoya prices for some of the the, the Hoya cultivars oh, and just been jaw dropped uh, looking at that so 
you know, it's supply and demand. Hey, if it means weird plants are going for cheap, like I just got a, a beautiful cycad for a giant one at that for 40 bucks. And yeah. the uh, tiny anthurium that was being sold next to it was in the triple digits. So I was like, hey, if you guys want to take the boring common stuff and pay a lot of money for it, which means all the weird stuff I like is cheap. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that's the benefit of not going with the crowd and, and, and liking what you like, which is... Um, not necessarily right. a thing that's that at a premium. I'm glad that I got a lot of my Hoyas a while ago now, though. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I can now be chopping. And, it was cool. I was chop. I can now be chopping and propping and making a fortune. Not that I'm going to, obviously, given that I, you know, <laughs> pro- proclaim to be all sort of, you know, ethical about this stuff. I think you've just got to like what you like and what makes you excited. And that's the main True. thing. That's a great note to end on. And thank you very much for joining me, Matt, and for shedding some light on the mysteries of, of dormancy and, and also telling us about your book. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Jane. It's always an honor to be on here. I love what you're doing. And it is always a complete and total pleasure chatting with you. I really enjoy it. So thank you again. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much to my guest, Matt Candeus. Do go and listen to the In Defense of Plants podcast and check out his book. All the details will be in the show notes as always. That's all for this week. I'm taking next Friday, that's April the 2nd, off for Easter. So I will see you in two weeks on April the 9th. Thanks for joining me. Bye. music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, Never Come Back by Soft and Furious, A Man Plays Trekking Song on Fewa Lake Pakara by Samuel Corwin, and Time to Move and Motivate by The Insider. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit the show notes for details. If you want to be the best, you got to move and motivate. If you wanna be the best, you got to move and motivate.